This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Stephen Croshaw is the co-founder and president of SA Lifeline Foundation, a nonprofit foundation dedicated to providing hope, education, and resources related to sexual addiction and betrayal trauma recovery. Stephen and his wife, Rill, are frequent speakers at community and church events in many cities across the nation. They offer their personal firsthand account and learning experiences that have shaped and refined their shared recovery. Stephen has been married to Rill Croshaw for 46 years, and they are the parents of seven children and 25 grandchildren. And Stephen is my dad. So I am very excited to have my dad here to share his his story of faith and um, he's a great man I'm gonna start off with that I think the most important part of this interview is that I'm your dad <laughs> <laughs> and that it's a miracle that we are having this interview it is a miracle yeah. and that we have the great relationship that we do so to start dad tell us a bit about your upbringing your family of origin and your involvement in the gospel growing up? My early life, I grew up in Logan, Utah. I was growing up in a, in a beautiful little community. My father was a dry farmer. Grew up in, in the city of Logan, but our farm was about 10 miles away, and we would travel back and forth in the summer to the farm. My parents were both members of the church, both born into the church. Uh, I have pioneer ancestors. My, Actually, my grandfather, your great-grandfather, believe it or not, walked across the plains. So I really, I have deep roots in the church. My early years with my family, I recall primarily with my dad. I spent a lot of time with him. I had a younger sister, 15 months younger than me, and my mom would care for the younger sister, and my dad would care for me. So I would spend a lot of time with him, literally, working on the farm as just a little boy. And those were some of my favorite memories growing up. And my dad was a great example to me. He was a church man. He was a great example of honesty and humility. He loved the earth. He had a testimony of the gospel and served in many church positions. I recall him serving in the bishopric and sitting on the stand in my youth. Um, my mother was also strong in testimony and a woman of great talent, and especially in music. She was a choral director from the time that I can remember. She directed choirs, taught piano, and was beloved by people in the church and the community because of her great talents and how she shared them with music. I gained a testimony from my parents primarily, I believe. we Two things, and these are specific, that I remember about my youth. We always went to church, and we always prayed as a family. We always knelt in prayer and said a, a, a prayer um, in the morning, and my father usually said the prayer. And we prayed oftentimes at night as a family, but not always. 
but we always went to church. I recall many people that I admired that were neighbors and friends as I grew up that had testimonies and shared them. And with that, I believe I gained a, an appreciation um, for good people and good people who were honest in their dealings, honest about their lives and the way that they wanted to raise a family in a, in a safe community. So I think back on my youth and I always had a testimony. I don't think I've ever doubted. I don't, I haven't always lived as though I had a testimony, but I have always had a testimony. So I'm grateful for the opportunity that I had to grow up with great people and great examples. I went to Logan City Schools and was a decent student. I had a lot of friends and was active in sports and music. My mother encouraged me in music. She couldn't discipline me hard enough to practice the piano, but I learned to read music, played the cello, and I taught myself to play the guitar. And the guitar actually was a pretty big part of my youth growing up. I started playing when I was in junior high and ended up in a boy band when I was in high school. <laughs> Tell me again what the epic name. The epic name of, of the boy band, band was. Well, the first band was called the Bittersweet Five. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it does deserve a bit of a laugh, but I must say, Tara, you know this: that every battle of the bands we were in, we won. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean that Something we were good. Something to, to know that, and that's, remember. That should have been on my resume. Every battle of bands that I was in, I won with my band. So, um, I was. I started out uh, going to college after high school, but I didn't last long. I, I, after three, some actually quarters back in the day, three quarters, I decided that I needed to, to work instead of go to school. So I started my career out and never went back to school. So my early life was very positive in most ways. Um, however, early on in my life, I I began to make some choices that I that I look back on now really changed the trajectory of my life going forward. And one of the choices I made was not to go on a mission, and I didn't go on a mission because I wasn't worthy. One thing I did learn in my youth, and that was that hard work pays off. I discovered that I was a salesperson, that I could sell. And... I recognized that if I worked hard as a salesperson, even in high school, that I could make good money. And that's that's when I discovered I could sell, was in high school. And I've essentially pursued that career throughout my life. Was um, I've been a salesperson in one way or another, always. Even though I've been very entrepreneurial and starting my own businesses, um, I've always been on the sales side of that. There's a good reason why we used to joke in the family that you could sell ice to the Eskimos. You you are a salesman at heart. You've brought that salesmanship to a greater cause, as we will talk about. Um, so tell us, uh, when were you first introduced to pornography? And how did your involvement with that develop and shift over time? My first exposure to pornography was at age six, and that would have been 1958. 
I accidentally found a magazine in my brother's chest of drawers. He was nine years older than me. And I don't know why I was looking through his chest of drawers. It was an innocent thing. I wasn't searching for something that would be hurtful or negative. It was actually not a chest of drawers. It was a trunk. And I may have been looking for some toys. I don't know. So I opened the trunk. And in the bottom of the trunk, there was a, an adult magazine. I could see from the cover it was very enticing to me. When I took it to my room and I looked at the whole thing, I knew that it wasn't right. I still recall the images in that magazine. And so after I'd looked at it and I knew it wasn't right, I took it to my mother and gave it to her. I don't recall her saying anything to me and I don't recall what I said to her. But I do know that had she said something to me that I would have remembered it. That was my first exposure and it was it was interesting because it was so impactful on me, I can still remember what it was. And I don't know that I would describe it in the way that many people that I talk to now that are working on recovery in their own lives, they talk about their first exposure. And I had one fellow in his description of his first experience with pornography as as a, as identifying this experience as magical and mystical. I don't know that I would have a strong enough recollection to describe it that way, but I was enticed enough and drawn to it that I, from that point forward, looked to see if I could find pornographic images in some place, generally with my brother's stuff, whether it was in his car or whatever. And then I would, so from that point forward, I had some experiences with pornography. I was introduced to masturbation by a friend who simply asked me if I was, you know, if I did that. Didn't use the word masturbation, but a crude word. We were riding our bikes, and I can still remember where we were, and I was about 11. Um, I said, no, I don't know what that is. And so he introduced the idea to me, and then I figured it out. So pornography and masturbation became part of my early childhood. And... Um, youth i participated in uh, in using porn of various just various magazines that's of course the internet was not available and movies weren't necessarily available to me and their tv was very benign at that time so that was my first experience and so that escalated into other behaviors that were outside of the the lines of what we would hope to be doing as members of the church. So for a long time, you were engaging in behaviors very contrary to gospel teachings, and yet you were highly active in the church. I always remember you being, you you were a churchgoer, you were a tithe payer, even when, even when things were tough, even when, when business wasn't going well. But I remember that you were always committed to paying your tithing and doing your home teaching. But all the while, and I know that your behaviors, you would go through periods of maybe white knuckling, as you might say. Um, but how did that hypocrisy in your life impact your connection with God and with your family? Well, can I, rather than answering that question as you've asked it, continue the story from my as a youth on a little bit. 
And then I'll get to that. So I struggled going to church once I was about 16 or 17. I, I still went, but I struggled. And then what you mentioned, I, I had in, in a couple of uh, girlfriends and I had inappropriate relationships with them. And that part of my story is one that, interestingly, I knew what I was doing was wrong. And I went to the bishop and I confessed to him on more than one occasion of what was going on. So I, th I thought that I had cleared up these issues, but I really hadn't cleared them up because I didn't know that I was dealing with something as challenging as I had experienced with pornography and inappropriate relationships. So that carried on as a youth and then as a young single adult. Um, as I mentioned, I left school, college, after three quarters. I went to work in Montana working for a company um, in sales, managing a sales uh, team in Bozeman, Montana, selling cable television, and um, met my wife, Rill, there. And that experience changed, was life-changing for me because Rill was very active, very strong in testimony. I was so drawn to her as a woman of testimony, a great lady. And so... I had obviously was continuing to go to church because I met her at church, which was a cool thing. So maybe the message here is keep going to church, even if you're not doing the right things, <laughs> because good things can happen there. And that was exactly the case. So when I met your mother, I had this, I had this past history, and she didn't know anything about it. And actually talking with a bishop before I got married we decided it would be best that I didn't tell your mother. Now, there's a whole story with that. Um, we don't recommend that that's the way people go into relationships, but that's what I chose to do. So when, when I was, I was, I would be considered in terms of activity, uh, a, not a less active, I would be considered active, but I wasn't a churchgoer going with enthusiasm before I was married. After I was married, um, then I was immediately called into responsible positions in leadership in the church. And that really was a more pronounced double life at that point. And so I was continuing with pornography and masturbation at some level. And the biggest challenge um, was yet to come for me because the challenges associated with compulsive sexual behavior, and I call it sexual addiction, and I, and I believe the science is bearing that out, is that the behaviors associated don't just want more, it want, they want different. And so in my occupational, uh, in my occupation as a sales guy, I traveled and I traveled all the time and that gave me exposure opportunities when I was alone in a way. And I started to um, attend, I started to go to adult establishments and ultimately, after many years, I would say after probably about 16 years of traveling, I eventually started to act out with prostitutes. And so what you're asking is about this double life. This double life is uh, not something that it's extremely difficult to live out of fear and shame. Um, I live the double life and I take obviously total responsibility for it. It was your mother and I enjoyed a very excellent 
physical relationship, our sexual relationship was healthy. But our emotional relationship was less than healthy because I wasn't available. I wasn't available emotionally to give myself to her because of the hypocrisy. And I didn't, I, I couldn't, I couldn't easily make myself available and, and attach with her because doing that would even raise the level of feelings of hypocrisy that I felt inside. So I, I could, I could compartmentalize and that's a word that you hear oftentimes with people who live a double life is I could compartmentalize my life in that when I was traveling I would have this time and opportunity and I would act out when I was not traveling and I was at home then I would be a husband and a father and a churchman and that that is sad but true and very difficult to live um, and it's because we can't really, we can't have a, we can't be in a gray area. We can't have one foot in and one foot out. And so it was very difficult for me and it took a toll on me physically, emotionally, spiritually. And, and I lived in hell. And I, I think people don't realize that it's possible to live in hell on earth, but we do, we put ourselves there. And so I, I, I chose to carry that burden of carrying these chains with me in this double life. The blessings continued in my life, however, um, and I credit your mother, my wife, uh, to a large degree that during this period of time where, where in our younger married years when we sh needed to be having children, we were. So we had a great family and your mother was a great mother. And I tried to be a, a good father, but I, I recognized that I was not as available for my children as I, as I certainly should have been. And had I been, I would have been blessed, and I know that I would have blessed their lives. But gratefully, you have a great mother, and um, I was still there to be a dad. Not all the time, but I was there to be a dad as well, for which I'm grateful. And so you ask about the hypocrisy. The interesting thing is I... Throughout all of this time, I didn't doubt my testimony. I didn't doubt the plan of salvation. I didn't doubt that Jesus is the Christ. However, I, I, felt an, I felt this feeling inside that at some point I would come forward and I would get honest. But because of fear, uh, shame, the anxiety of the possibility of losing everything, I would constantly delay this needed repentance and to be completely honest. So that delay or kicking the can down the road occurred for many years, many, many years. So that went on until I was about age 37. And what's interesting is I do recall many times seeing you stand at the pulpit and bear your testimony. And so I knew that you had a testimony. I always knew that. And I, I was blessed by that testimony, even when you were living that double life. And so I think it's, it's perhaps key to remember that obviously none of us are perfect. <laughs> and we all equally need the, the Savior's atonement in our lives at whatever point we are in in our life. But that he will also bless us for the good that we do do. Because while um, you had your challenges, and I often felt that disconnect emotionally from you, as we've discussed in the past, that you would be there, but you weren't there. 
I appreciated that you were, you were a good provider and the Lord was still blessing you because of, of the result of, of other obedience in other areas. And so um, recognizing that God desires to bless us even when we are in the grip of sin. So Saul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Alma, the younger, was struck down by an angel. As I have told your story to others, I've occasionally described you as a type of Alma the Younger. (laughs) But both of these individuals, they made a total 180 in their lives after those experiences. What was your come-to-Jesus moment, and how did that change the trajectory of your life? Uh, The most dramatic moment that I experienced was a blessing of being arrested on August 25th, 2005 for picking up a prostitute. I picked up a girl that was a prostitute and I had no intention of acting out with her, but I was arrested for that, for picking her up. And not to minimize the experience, I was, um, I knew that she was a prostitute and I picked her up for a lust hit. So anyway, I was arrested. At that moment, I really felt like my life was going to end. I felt like I was I would be discovered and as a result would lose my family, lose my church membership because I, I had actively been acting out with prostitutes. So the Lord provided me with an interruption of several men dressed in blue outfits with badges. <laughs> and they were my angels. They arrested me and I frankly, recall that experience very, very vividly. It was traumatic and shaming and traumatizing and um, life-changing. So what happened was um, they arrested me and gave me a ticket, a misdemeanor ticket, and sent me on my way. And I was so fearful of what that meant that the next day I went to an attorney and talked to an attorney about the circumstances, but I didn't tell my wife. I didn't tell anyone. And the interesting thing is when I went to the attorney, he asked me some questions about the experience of being arrested. He asked me if I had admitted guilt, and I said I had not. He said, well, I'll get you off then, and you won't, you won't, go any further through the legal process because there's no way that they can prove that you even knew what you were doing. And um, because I hadn't admitted that I knew that she was a prostitute. So, and I hadn't acted out with her. So anyway, the, what the attorney told me was correct. He, he did um, solve that legal issue without any, any prosecution. The problem was that that did not solve my problem. At the moment, I thought that that would, that I had essentially escaped being caught. But I couldn't live with myself. I was still fearful that I would be discovered that that had occurred. So several weeks went by. On September 11th, uh, the night of September 11th, actually uh, is a Sunday, or the, the Saturday night is, a, is the 10th. And Sunday morning, the 11th, I laid in bed contemplating my circumstances, recognizing that I was in 
incredible pain and fear and shame, and I was afraid I would get caught. So I couldn't sleep. I laid in bed, didn't move, and contemplated who I was and who I am and what had happened and what am I going to do. And fear was just enveloping me. And wanting to relieve the pain, I began to consider my testimony. And so at first I asked myself if I believed in God because I felt like, you know what, if I don't really believe in God, then why, why feel pain? Why be so concerned about this? Uh, because there's really not going to be consequences if there is no God. And so I asked myself the question, do I believe in God? And I could only answer yes. And then I asked myself the question, does God know me? And the answer is yes. And will I meet him? The answer is yes. Will I tell him my story? The answer is yes. I will. So as I began to contemplate the circumstances in within that context, I said, how foolish can I possibly be? I'm not fooling God and I'm not I'm living in this tremendous pain. So that's total hypocrisy. And it's, it's also killing me. So what can I do? And I was so afraid to come forward because the possibilities of losing my marriage were very high. Losing my church membership were very high. Losing my family. Um, losing my job. So all I, I just had this lose, 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 lose mentality that I can't come forward because I'll lose. And I finally said to myself, you've already lost where you are. So either choose to get honest or you do lose. So I came to the conclusion that I would get honest. So it was early Sunday morning when I said to myself and to God, I will come forward before church, and I will tell my wife, Rill, and I will tell the bishop what had gone on. And as soon as I made that commitment, I made it in my heart, and God knew that I made it in my heart. <clears throat> and the reason I know that I made it in my heart is because I felt immediate relief, which was amazing. I felt, instead of tremendous fear, I began to feel hope that there could be a solution. And so that hope carried me through to actually being able to follow through on my commitment to get honest before nine o'clock, which I did. And that, at that moment, I had this enough relief that I was able to follow through on my commitment. And that opened every door of opportunity for me. So from that moment that I made the decision that I would come forward, I believe the Lord picked up and carried. He strengthened me sufficiently that I would follow through with my commitment, which I did. And once I followed through with my commitment, it, the bishop became involved. Of course, your mother was involved. I chose to tell all of my children that day appropriately. And the state president became involved shortly thereafter. And so all the processes of being able to get the help that I needed to learn and understand what recovery was from sexual addiction actually started not at 
the time that I was willing to get honest. If I really look at it from the standpoint of how God helped me, it, it started long before that. And I'm sure it started long before that I was arrested because I, I think I had to be in a mindset that I, that I knew that I had to make a change. But the arrest became a catalyst and then making the decision to get honest started the ball rolling. And the courage that it took to do that is significant because there is an incredible amount of fear. And so any person that I have an opportunity to meet that has the courage to come forward and be honest, I have growing respect for because of their, I know how much courage it takes and how, how fearful it can be to get to that point. And whether a person gets caught or whether a person simply chooses on their own, um, the Lord will bless each one of us. He blessed me and I will make the promise to any person who will soften their heart's heart and allow God to help them, that God will step in and help. That's my testimony. That is my experience, not just my testimony. So there's a scripture that goes with this and it relates specifically to my experience of immediacy of what happens when, a, when my heart softened. The scripture is Alma 34, 31, and I think I can say it close to word for word, but it goes, Yea, I would that you would come forth and harden not your hearts any longer. For behold, <clears throat> now is the time and the day of your salvation. Therefore, if you will repent and harden not your hearts, immediately will the great plan of redemption be brought about unto you. The word immediately is real. It happens. But it's up to me to choose that that's what I want. We know from the scriptures that God knows our hearts. And it is possible to experience that in our own, and have the testimony that that is in fact the case, a personal witness if I am willing to allow myself <clears throat> to soften my heart sufficiently that God can in fact immediately bless me. Now, the immediacy for me was a relief of the pain of doom. And then being strengthened with enough courage to follow through. And then, as I mentioned, the Lord carried me by putting into my pathway all of those people that could help me. And then also, I believe, a blessing upon my wife and my children to have patience with me. So to give me an opportunity to go through the repentance process and not essentially leave me on my own at that point. So that opportunity was given to me by my wife and by my children. And then I went through the processes at that point of starting down the pathway of repentance and recovery. And that's what I did. A couple of thoughts. You were at a crossroads. And I think it's in those moments when we, we make that decision. Will I soften my heart? Will I look toward God or will I turn my face away and and I think we all have moments like that in our lives and it doesn't matter how how far we've we've dropped or how how deep we are in whatever behavior um, God's arm is always extended and I'm so grateful for your example and your story because for me and I have said this in so many different places and so many times I feel like I'm always repeating myself, but 
we, we don't give the atonement enough credit. The atonement of Jesus Christ can heal us and bring us from those dark places. And we, sh- we should never feel that we've, we've gone too far outside of the lines to be recovered. We often think excommunication is the worst thing that could ever happen to us. But tell me about your experience being excommunicated from the church and how going through the repentance process and applying the atonement of Jesus Christ has changed you. Well, I'm grateful for a great bishop and a great stake president. And I felt like I was blessed through the process of church discipline. And I did experience in, um, in the process of going through the processes of being excommunicated in a disciplinary council, what I felt like was a very loving environment with a great stake president. Um, for me, the experience was a new opportunity. It was a chance now to start over. Um, I believe I was given a blessing of not feeling overwhelming shame as I went through the processes of uh, disciplinary counsel, as I continued to attend church, as I worked with my bishop and stake president, as I worked with my wife in the recovery process and in the repentance process, as I worked with my children. And so the experience for me of being excommunicated was one that gave me a new beginning, a new opportunity. And it was also a recognition of the seriousness of what I was dealing with in my life, in a in perspective of my life. I view it in, in hindsight, and I viewed it then as an opportunity. And it is an opportunity to start over. And it, can, it was a great blessing and continues to be a blessing in my life. One of the great blessings of watching this all unfold is witnessing how God can use us as instruments to aid his children if we are willing to be used. And telling your story so publicly undoubtedly takes an enormous amount of courage. What gives you the strength to be so vulnerable and do this very messy work with others? There's an interesting comment from people who are working recovery from addiction. It's kind of this idea that you can tell if a person's in recovery because they're willing to talk about their story. And if they're not in recovery, it's very difficult for them to do that. So I'm grateful to be able to tell my story because it helps me in my own work of recovery and it also reminds me of the opportunities that were given to me as I came forward and started to work my own recovery that I found many others who were willing to share with me their story. The biggest motivation for both myself and your mother to tell our story as public as it is, is recognizing how difficult it was for us to find a pathway of recovery. I started in the behavior, as we mentioned earlier, early in my life, and I continued in some form or another for decades and decades. Multiple times I tried to stop the behavior, and 
many times I, I went through the repentance process formally and actually looked for some help. And on those multiple occasions, never really was given good direction and understanding what recovery would take. So on, as we worked our recovery and the repentance process beginning in 2005, we recognized how difficult the pathway had been for me to find the help and the courage to come forward and be honest. Your mother recognized how difficult her pathway was with the experiences she had as a betrayed spouse and that the first part of our beginning recovery, we didn't even understand trauma. No one was even talking about it. So we decided that we needed to give back about three years into the recovery process and help people understand that there is a pathway of recovery. And we began to share our story privately um, to, to those that we found and help them understand the importance of qualified therapy and how important 12-step is. We then decided to start the foundation so that we could be more formal in the effort to help people find resources. And that was really driven by our own experience, how difficult it was to find resources for recovery. That it is just not easy to find resources. And honestly, every single person that decides that they're gonna start this process has to be given help. They seek help and many times in seeking that help they still don't find answers. So there is a pathway and as we have walked the pathway we've wanted to shine light more and more and more on it. So other people who are experiencing similar circumstances to our own don't have to make the same mistakes that we did in looking for help. Most marriages would not be able to survive the difficulties that ours has been through. So if we can help people find recovery resources early in their marriage or early before they're married, we can, we can help them avoid some very difficult experiences that we've had in our process. I'm grateful that I've been blessed with the courage to do the work, but even greater than that, I haven't felt great shame going forward in this process. A lot of people are fearful of sharing their story because of being judged harshly. I've never felt that fear, the fear of being judged harshly. And so I would say at this point, we our story is very public and it's in video and it's in writing and we have been subjects of documentaries, etc. But Right now, for those that are listening to this podcast, if you are interested in more information about our story and recovery, we have great resources available on our two websites, salifeline.org and sal12step.org, and very specifically the book that your mother wrote that has our complete stories in it called What Can I Do About Me by Real Crowshaw. And sharing our experiences with others has been helpful in our own recovery, in my own recovery. So as I work my recovery, especially in now attending multiple 12-step meetings a week, I have an opportunity to help others along the pathway. And in doing so, I help myself. So giving back is, I believe, what the Lord, the Lord's plan is outlined as that we help each other. We help each other by in many ways, sharing our own experiences, our own strength, our own hope, our own testimony. 
And if we have had a very, really difficult experience, even though it may be shaming, if we're willing to go through the repentance process and do the work and so that we're on higher ground, it's important that we be making ourselves available to do the work of the Savior and help other people along the pathway. So that's our motivation. I'm always impressed with the Shakespeare quote that goes something like this, "'Twas I, but tis not I." And so as I look back and I rehearse my own story of behavior and the challenges associated with that, I really prefer, I, I, I need to tell that story and all those wrong choices that I made the more important part of the story is what happened with the opportunities given me through the repentance process and the recovery process. That's what I need to share. And my share is, and my testimony is, is that the atonement is real. It has effect in my life. And I have a testimony that it has effect in all lives. My testimony is that recovery is possible. And it's not just possible, but it will happen for each person that commits themselves to the work of recovery because the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. In chapter 6 of Alcoholics Anonymous, it actually is chapter 5. Chapter 5 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous starts out like this. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And what does that mean to thoroughly follow the path? And then it goes on to say that only those that are unwilling or unable to be honest cannot recover. But for those who are willing to be honest and then apply themselves to the work of understanding God and his love and how to give our will over to him, through that surrender process, we can in fact recover and live meaningful, happy, joyous lives as God intended for us. When we talk about rebirth, when we're baptized, when when you were rebaptized only a short year after you had been excommunicated, I was just thinking as you were talking about, you know, you have to tell that story of, of your, your previous life, <laughs> but you are now a new man. You are reborn. You have a new heart. And that is what Christ promises us as we follow him, that he can change us. And I've seen that. I've seen that since the day you sat down with us and you told all of us kids, honestly, what you had been up to and it was heartbreaking but at the same time it was hope filling because i knew that the man that was sitting across from me was not the same man that had been hiding all those years past that something had changed and we had been blessed as a family now for 14 years almost because you chose that path and because mom chose that path and so that the reality of that hope is it's more than hope we, we see these, these miraculous stories of change and transformation. And as we, as we share that more, hopefully others will take that path toward the Savior and toward change. We believe in recovering individuals and healing families. <clears throat> Children suffer greatly by decisions made by parents and that's totally out of their control. And so the atonement applies to them as well. In the healing process. The tough part about for children is it's oftentimes very difficult for them to make a lot of contribution to the work of recovery and repentance that their parents go through, especially their dads in a case like mine. This is an unusual conversation for a father and daughter to have. But if 
I'm, I'm very appreciative of your example of a daughter who was willing to give her dad continuing love and support through the process of recovery and repentance. And yes, I know that your heart was pained deeply. And I know that there were times when you suffered wondering, is my dad going to be able to meet the challenges that face him in an honest, good way, partake of the blessings of, the re of repentance? But I know that your testimony buoyed you up, and I also know that your prayers helped me and that your willingness to pray for me and pray for your mother um, and not withdraw, but stay present, stay close, was just an unbelievable blessing. And your siblings did the same. So we have been blessed as a family because you and your siblings worked um, to partake of the blessings of the atonement and support me in my efforts to partake of the blessings of the atonement. And your mother, uh, you gathered her and put your arms around her and loved her and said, Mom, we support you in whatever you need to do. And uh, But we just pray for both of you. So that needed to be added to that part. So after all this, you're 66 years old, 67. I should know that. We're exactly 30 years apart. That's right. You should know that, Terry. So how old are you if we're 30 years apart? <laughs> I have to think about that one for a minute. Why are you still rowing when others are jumping ship for similar reasons of addiction and not wanting to follow the standards of the church? Why are you still rowing and choosing faith in the church of Jesus Christ? The short answer is because I have a testimony and I, I recognize the incredible blessings that I have in my life as I'm willing to partake of them and participate in them and not throw them away. That's why I'm still rowing. I'm rowing because I have a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm rowing because I have a lot to live for in this life and a lot to live for in the next life. I have an incredible wife and family. I have an opportunity to help others, which is a great blessing to me. So I continue to row because it's the right thing to do, but more than that, it's It's the only thing that I can do and, and really, truly, honestly be at peace with myself. I really don't even want to think about the possibilities of, of um, not being successful and being with my family long-term, eternally. Those blessings, I believe, are the greatest blessings that I have to live for. So I continue to strive for those. And you know what? Recovery is healthy living. And it's possible to be happy. We sometimes say to people who begin working recovery and struggle with it, we say, you know, we have this tendency to back away from hell instead of turn and run for heaven. Sometimes we're afraid to leave <clears throat> that life behind because the counterfeit actually was a life that we understood. And even though it brought great pain, it was an emotional escape that a lot of people are afraid to leave. There's other ways to deal with life in a healthy way. The counterfeits never give back, never give us life. They always take away life. So my encouragement, my own effort now is to live life one day at a time. As I work recovery, it's a process. It's not a destination. A lot of guys will ask me, okay, when can I go back 
when can I be in, in recovery and go back to my normal life? And I ask, what is normal life? Normal life is learning how to live in recovery. And recovery is a daily, one day at a time work. And then we can be happy. Part of that work is, is on our knees. Part of that work is um, knocking at the door of our Father in Heaven, asking Him, is there someone that needs help? Thanks, Tara. Appreciate the time to spend with you as a mother-daughter conversation, which is a bit unusual. Father-daughter. I mean a father-daughter. <laughs> Let's get that right. Maybe I ought to edit that out. <laughs> well, thank you, Dad. Thank you for your testimony. I know that there have been many blessed by your story and your testimony and will continue to be. So thank you for sharing yourself and your time so freely. Hey, all I felt like I needed to say a little bit more about my experience before tying this episode up. As my dad and I already noted, it's unusual to have a father-daughter interview like the one you just heard. We were very fortunate and unique to have had the outcome we did. We are also grateful to be well on the other side of such a challenging experience. I wanted that conversation to be about my dad's story and his experience, not so much about mine, but I felt strongly that I needed to emphasize a couple of things since I purposefully didn't express a lot of emotion I felt at that time. I'm 14 years away from that experience, so I can discuss the difficult realities of my dad's addiction and the subsequent consequences without getting super emotional and downtrodden. I've heard this story many, many times, but I want to reassure you when this information was coming out and the months following, it was no picnic. The hurt was deep and it was real. The confusion, the sense of betrayal and the sadness and anger were sometimes overwhelming. I recall nights on my knees with my head in my hands, just sobbing as I navigated very messy emotions and fear about what the future held for my family. If you are the family member of someone who has an addiction, I want you to know it's okay to allow yourself to feel whatever you need to feel. Finding the strength to forgive may take time. And by the way, remember that forgiveness is not the same as trust. Trust has to be earned. And just like recovery is a journey for someone who has an addiction, so is the recovery of the affected loved ones. Give yourself grace through this process. Turn to God and allow other trusted individuals into your circle to help you through it. Most of all, believe in the reality of healing. I hope, I hope you felt hope as you listened to my dad's story. There is hope for better days ahead. On another vein, I hope that my dad's story serves as a motivation to be diligent and courageous in your own fight against pornography. We need to be teaching our children about the effects of pornography and what to do when they encounter it, not if, but when. With all that's going on in the world, there are many causes and banners you could take up in this day and age, but I don't believe there is one as important as the fight against pornography. If you look at every evil in society, 
such as infidelity, abuse, rampant divorce, violence against women, abortion, uh, human trafficking, much of it will find its roots in the demand and consumption of pornography. Many will say it's harmless fun, that it hurts no one, but they couldn't be more wrong. Our relationships and our families are being torn apart at the seams by it. Our prophets have warned us time and time again to stay away from it and to repent if we have found ourselves involved with it. If pornography is affecting your life or the life of a loved one, I plead with you to seek out help. Don't wait till you hit rock bottom to make a change. Addiction thrives in isolation. This cannot be dealt with and overcome alone. Connection with God, his servants, and those who love you will bring you through. If you are interested in uh, some helpful resources, I will uh, put those in, some show, in the show notes, so please take a look there. And next week, I will be posting the interview I did with my mom. You'll not want to miss her story and how she rose from the ashes of betrayal trauma. Thanks for being with me today, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. The views expressed here are not necessarily the views of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor is this podcast affiliated with the church. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to receive updates on future episodes. You can submit comments or questions at stillrowing.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.